Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of God. Welcome once again to all of you who've gathered here for this, uh, this worship service. Or great, it's great to, to see all of you. If you're a guest with us, we're especially happy that you're here um, to, to worship our living Lord together and to dive into his word as we're about to do just now. Thank you, Steve, for reading God's word to us. Last week, we began to look closely at our church's covenant a covenant is a promise that's made or an agreement that's made between two or more people. And so our church covenant, it's a series of promises that we have made to each other as members of this local congregation. So if you have gone through the membership process here at New Hope um, and you've officially and, and formally committed yourself to this congregation, then this covenant is not new to you. You've read it. Um, you've agreed to it, um, so consider this series a reminder and a, and a deeper dive into our commitments towards one another as members of this church. If you're not a member uh, of, of New Hope Fellowship and haven't gone through that process, I'm so glad again that you're here, and I hope that what we look at over the next couple of months will really help you to understand who we are as a church and what we're about really what we're aiming for. And, and when I, I say aiming for, because frankly, we often fall short. We do not always succeed to live up to that which we aim for as a community. That should come as no surprise. Back on April 5th, 2003, Delimar Garcia Ramirez and I entered into a covenant together. We made vows in the presence of God in the presence of our family and our friends. And since that day, we have been joined as husband and wife until death do us part. According to Jesus, we became one flesh. That's objectively true. But that doesn't mean that we have always lived every moment since April 5th, 2003, in the light of that truth. At times, I have ignored Delimar's best interests, at times we've differed sharply, and we, I haven't handled those disagreements in a patient or understanding way. If you are married, perhaps you can relate to that. The simple fact is that we can be objectively united, bound to each other by a covenant, but fail to act like we are at times. We can be objectively united but live day to day as if we're not. At times we can forget, we can neglect the vows that we made towards one another, 
That's why line two of our church covenant reads this way. It says, we will work and pray for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We will work and pray for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is a commitment, a promise that we've made to one another as members of this church. We will strive for unity is what we're saying. Specifically by working for unity and praying for unity. Now, last week we saw from Scripture that if you have believed in Jesus Christ and if you have received him as Savior and as Lord, then you've been united to God and you've been united to other Christians. If we have believed in Jesus, we've been united to God and we've been united to one another by grace, by grace. That means that the relationship that we now enjoy with God and with one another was given to us as a gift. That's what grace means. It was given to us as a gift. We didn't earn it. We didn't create the unity. We didn't create that bond. We received it as a gift. And we depend on God's grace to keep us in relationship with him and with each other. Apart from his grace, apart from his power at work in us, we'll make a mess of our relationships with each other and we'll make a mess of our relationship with him. So you might ask, if our relationship to, to God and to one another is a gift, and if it's sustained by God, then why do we need to work and pray for unity? If the relationship is a gift from God, then why do we need to work and pray to maintain it and keep it and nurture it, as our covenant says? Well, I'd remind you again of my marriage or your marriage or any close committed relationship that you have. The connection that you have with someone else, the bond, the relationship is a gift from God, no doubt. And whether you realize it or not, you depend on God to preserve that relationship. And yet, you can't be passive in your attitude towards that relationship or in your attitude towards that person that you are connected to. If you are neglectful or passive, you will harm the relationship. The relationship will suffer. You will hurt it through neglect or maybe through betrayal. Many of us have experienced that. Relationships that have broken down because either we or the other person has been neglectful or has broken covenant vows. So we can't be passive. We can't be passive. Think about your own family. You can be a household but not live like one. Isn't it possible to live with people that you are connected to via family, via blood or adoption, and yet the relationships can so deteriorate that you become like roommates, basically. You're just occupying the same space. Or sometimes in your, you might start to feel like we're just business partners. We work together. That's what we are. Or at worst, you could actually become enemies, opponents within your household because you've forgotten what it is that brought you together in the first place and what it is that now binds you to each other. And so it is with the church. We can begin to live as if we were not united to Jesus and to one another by his gospel. We, we can allow uh, neglect or, or betrayal or offenses to hurt our relationships within the church. We can even let differences start to divide us. Differences that were meant by God to actually enrich our community. We can let those differences actually divide us. 
And that's why we must strive for unity. It's why our, our covenant tells us to work and pray for unity. And what we're going to see today is a little bit of how we do that. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, which Steve just read to us. They tell us, in part, how to strive for unity. Now, before we even look there, you should know that the New Testament is actually filled with calls to pursue unity. It's all over the place. I'm going to give you some examples. And, and, and I encourage you to read these carefully and let the accumulated weight of them kind of settle on you. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That's the Apostle Paul writing to a church in Corinth. Romans 15 says this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I'll read one more example. It's from 1 Peter. This, the previous one was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. This is from 1 Peter. It's a scattered Christians all over the Roman Empire. He said, finally, all of you, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to you, for to this, you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And you see, there's plenty, and there's more. We could go on. There are plenty of calls throughout the New Testament. Pursue unity. Pursue unity, move towards each other, welcome one another, forgive one another, embrace one another. And maybe you notice that built into those instructions that we just read, there's often a warning. There's often a warning against the opposite of unity. There's a, war, a warning against quarrels and divisions, reviling, revenge, repaying evil for evil. Sometimes, you know what the apostles do? Sometimes they actually would call out people by name in these letters. And say, I've heard that so-and-so is fighting with so-and-so. Help them stop. Help them make peace. And so if we take all of that together, all of it implies that unity, unity in the church is not just important. It's really hard. If it were not really hard, the apostles wouldn't have addressed it so much. They wouldn't have had to write this over and over again. So let's acknowledge how hard it is. Let's not pretend that this is simple. It's not. And let's acknowledge how much we need instruction and reminders from the scriptures to work and pray for unity. But of all those passages we could focus on, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4. I encourage you to open up to it if you have a Bible. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Because it contains, and the reason we're looking at this passage is because it contains the very language that our covenant uses. It's where our covenant got its language from. So let's read it. And this is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Look, here it is. Here's our covenant's language. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now notice verse 3 tells us to maintain the unity. That means preserve it, protect it, because it's valuable. So cherish it. Don't neglect it. Don't, don't assume it. But preserve it and protect it. And notice he doesn't say, he doesn't say maintain the unity of the church, although he could have said that, but he doesn't. Instead, he calls it the unity of the spirit. Isn't that interesting? Maintain the unity of the spirit. Literally, it's the oneness of the spirit. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, there is one body, notice the theme here, right? One body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Here's my best attempt at trying to explain Paul's point. He's talking about God. He's saying God, and the God that he's talking about here is the God who is three in one, the triune God of the Bible. He's three in one. That means he is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, often called the Lord, and the Holy Spirit. So when anyone comes to believe in the Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord, when anyone comes to believe in the Son, he or she is brought into fellowship, into community with the Father, into a covenant relationship with the Father. You are now, if you have believed in the Son, you are now adopted into the Father's family. And furthermore, the Holy Spirit begins to live in you. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, begins to dwell in you. One Spirit dwelling in each person who has believed in Jesus and has therefore been adopted by the Father. That means, that means that all of us who have believed in Jesus are now member of God's one family. We are all members of one family, and the one single Holy Spirit lives in all of us. He is one Spirit, and because he lives in each of us, we should live as one family, as one body, Paul says. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I know that I know that the, the, the idea of one God existing in three persons is mysterious. It's it's unexplainable. It's it's confusing in some ways. But this idea here is is, is simpler. There, there's one Holy Spirit who lives in all of us. And and because he lives in all of us, his presence in all of us unites us as one. He is one, and so those in whom he dwells must also be one. We are connected by a spiritual bond that has given us peace with one another. We no longer need to view one another as enemies or as opponents. We don't need to compete with one another. No, we see each other now as family. That, that, that is the unity of the Spirit. That's what Paul means by the unity of the Spirit. It's the very objective truth that the Spirit lives in each believer, and so therefore we are one. We are united with each other if the Spirit lives in us. That's the unity of the Spirit. It's a oneness that's created by the Holy Spirit of God when we put our faith in Jesus. When we embrace that one faith 
Now, there are many faiths in the world, right? But the Apostle Paul says there's only one true faith. There's only one faith that actually leads to salvation. It leads to eternal life. When you, put, when you, when you embrace that one faith and you were baptized with that one baptism, now you have that faith and that baptism in common with every other follower of Jesus. But even at a deeper level, what unites us is the Spirit of God living in us. So Paul says, cherish that. Cherish the oneness that you have. Value it. Do what you can to protect that oneness, to preserve that unity. Don't devalue it. Don't neglect it. Don't live as if you're not one when you are. Because when you live that way, what happens is, he will go on to say later in this chapter, you grieve the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says in verse 30. We can look at it in verse 30. He says, you will cause grief to God, the Holy Spirit, when you allow, quote, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander into your hearts and into your relationships. It's the opposite of unity, right? That's what destroys unity, bitterness. That low-level kind of anger towards others, that kind of fixed negative attitude and opinion towards someone. Wrath, anger, clamor, slander. It all threatens the unity that we have and it grieves the spirit. It causes grief to him. Now, if preserving unity is hard, let's just admit it. Let's just admit it. Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, those are all pretty easy, aren't they? Don't, don't those things, doesn't bitterness kind of come natural to you? Or like complaining come natural to you? Slandering someone? Some, it comes so natural sometimes, you don't even notice you do it. You can, you can, we can say negative things about others, and that's what the Bible's word for slander, by the way, doesn't just mean spreading false rumors about people. The Bible word for slander means speaking hurtful, um, destructive words about people, even if they're true. <laughs> it's still slander, according to the Bible, right? Those words come easy. Like, we can cut people down and put, sometimes I'll say, something will come out of my mouth and I won't even notice how negative and hurtful it was until after it's already out. We can get bitter and angry towards one another over hurts, over offenses, over, over politics, maybe. You ever gotten angry with someone over politics? Comes easy. Over disagreements and different opinions. Even, even as Christians, sometimes we can get angry at each other and bitter towards each other over different opinions on what the Bible says about secondary issues. Let me pause. Let me pause for a moment just to, to shout out uh, this church for, for a moment. I want to I give a word of praise and a word of gratitude. I think it's in order for the unity that many of us have seen lived out here at New Hope. Again, it's not perfect. We fail. It's not perfect. Not by a long shot. But the unity that at least that I've witnessed and maybe some of you have witnessed here is remarkable. I became pastor here back in 2016, a year that I think in some ways will, will, uh, will live in infamy. There was, what was in store for, for, for us in 2016? There was a presidential election, wasn't there? There were protests and riots in the street in response to injustice. 
There are cries for order in response to those riots. All this since 2016. Lots happened since then. A pandemic, health mandates and closures, another election, Capitol building stormed. What else? What else? Have we had some things to maybe fight over over the past few years? The past seven years have given us many, many opportunities to divide, to grow angry, to grow bitter, to slander one another. Now, I don't know if you would agree with me, but what I saw in our church was, by and large, mutual understanding, patience, love, and a focus on the gospel. Now, now that's not all that was there. There, there were offenses. There was stress. There were disagreements. Yes, but not without the spirit-empowered effort towards mutual understanding and patience and love and an unrelenting focus on the gospel. Folks, that is the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That is from the spirit of God. That's something the spirit of God did, not us. It's not from us, it's from him. But we were not passive in that, were we? We had to deny ourselves some things. We had to deny some of our own preferences. We had to um, not say things that maybe we impulsively wanted to say. We had to not judge one another in ways that maybe we impulsively wanted to judge. We sought to maintain that unity of the spirit. We sought to cherish and protect it by God's grace. And so these words are not meant to flatter you or us as a church. They're meant to to praise God. And we had to do this even in the face of loss for many of us. Who lost loved ones over the past seven years. Who lost jobs and careers over the past seven years. Who lost, missed each other's presence for a good chunk of that time. We had to work and pray for unity. And God answered. God answered. And so praise be to God. Praise be to God. We did not come through unscratched, of course, and we didn't come through with a flawless record. Relationships took hits. Some of us have drifted from one another, and our relationships have, have weakened. Perhaps now, perhaps now, as we renew our covenant with one another, perhaps now the Lord is calling us once again to work and pray for unity in those strained places in those relationships that have weakened over the past few years. Perhaps the Lord is calling us to recommit ourselves and move towards those with whom we were once close and have grown distant. We're towards those that we haven't worked to get to know yet. As, as, I, as I say that, I wonder if, any, if anyone comes to mind for you, if any names come to mind. Are there relationships in this church that need your attention, that need my, our attention, that need prayer or work. If you can't think of anyone, then I praise God for that. That's fine, but is there anyone the Lord is laying on your heart as someone to get to know, someone to move towards? The Lord is calling us to work and pray to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
It's interesting that when Paul starts the section in chapter 4, he starts it by saying, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That's verse 1. Now, this happens to be, by the way, this is the, the, the halfway point in, the, in this letter to the Ephesians. And the whole first half, what he did is he spent lots of time describing what God has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The whole first half of Ephesians, it's about what God has done to reconcile us to himself and to each other. It's all been about what God has done through the gospel and how he's given us this new identity as God's people, united by his spirit. And now as he turns the corner into the second half, chapter 4, he's saying, live as if everything I told you in the past three chapters is true. Because it is. Conduct yourselves in the light of everything I've just told you. That's what it means to walk worthy of, a, in, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's, he's told us, you, you, you've been called into God's family. You've been called into this great big community of God's people from every part of the world. You've been called to worship and serve the Lord who died and who rose again to bring you to God. So now, now, live like it. Live like it. Walk in a manner worthy of it. He's not saying make yourself worthy. He's saying walk in a way, live in a way that aligns with, that only makes sense if everything I told you about the gospel is true. And a great big part of living like, like it is, is treasuring and protecting this unity and the peace that God has called you into. And Paul will go on to explain that if you really want to maintain that unity, here's what it's going to take. Here's how you're going to maintain that unity. You will have to think and act with, verse 2, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So, so if you're passionate about Jesus, you love Jesus, you're going to be passionate about unity. And if you're passionate about unity, you're going to have to be passionate about this. You're going to have to be passionate about being humble and gentle and patient and forbearing. And forbearing simply means you're willing to put up with people. You're willing to put up with one another. And it's all got to be motivated by love, he says. Let, let's think about what often happens. Now, this is the interesting thing, though. Think about what happens in the midst of conflict, all right? Remember, he's saying, be humble, gentle, patient, and forbearing. Four great things to be. What happens usually in the midst of conflict? When you're angry. When you feel like you've been wronged. Or, or maybe it's just simple. Someone disagrees with you. Someone disagrees with you. What often happens in that moment? Aren't, aren't, let's be honest, aren't humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance, aren't they like the first things to go out the window in those moments? Like when you disagreed with me? Oh, you think you know better than I do? Oh, you hurt me? Oh, you neglected me? You ignored me? Oh, you betrayed me? What happens in that moment? Humility gets replaced with self-righteous pride. I'm right. Or I'm in the right. And the gentleness, gentleness gets traded in for harshness. Because I got to make this right. I got to put this person in their place. And they're not going to listen to me until, unless I raise my voice, unless I get serious with them. Patience and forbearance, they turn into frustration. And that frustration is manifested in our volume and in our posture. 
And as a result, what happens? Conflict escalates, doesn't it? Conflict escalates. You, maybe, maybe examples are kind of, you know, I don't have to, I don't even have to go back 24 hours. I can think to last night, I can think to last night in my house, humility in my heart got replaced with self-righteous pride and gentleness got traded in for harshness and patience and forbearance turned into frustration and elevated voices. Voice, I shouldn't say voices. I won't throw anyone on the bus. It was just me. It was just me. I was the only angry one. I was the only one sinning in that way. So if you take each of these words in Ephesians, you take the, 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 the humility or the gentleness or the, the forbearance um, and, and, and you take any of those words and you replace it with its opposite, and what do you get? You get a picture of what escalating conflict looks like. That's exactly escalating conflict. Now, conflict will happen, won't it? It, it is going to happen. We can't avoid it. To be in community is to live under, with the threat and reality. The conflict may be just around the corner. Ephesians doesn't just show us how to minimize the chances that conflict will happen. What Ephesians does is it shows us what to do, how to deal with it when it does happen. How will you respond when there is a disagreement, when there's been a hurt? And what Ephesians tells us is the way to respond is by humbling yourselves. That means, that means getting off of our self-righteous high horse by intentionally treating the other person with gentleness that means no hurtful, diminishing words, no generalizing. Oh, you always do. Oh, you never. None of that. It means no slander and gossip. It means patiently recognizing that you're not so easy to get along with yourself. And that you too have said and done some dumb and hurtful things. And it means putting up with one another again and again and again out of love. Love for your brother and sister but also out of love for the Lord. Down in verse 32 of the same chapter, Ephesians 4, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Notice, the assumption here is that conflict is going to happen. That's why you're going to need to forgive someone. If there was no conflict, why would anyone need to forgive? But what will you do when the conflict comes? He says, in the face of conflict, when you're most likely to not be tenderhearted, to not be kind, he's saying, no, that's especially the time to be tenderhearted and kind and to forgive. And notice the motivation for forgiveness here. It's the only true motivation that we have for forgiveness that I can think of. It's the gospel. Jesus died for the sin of the person who hurt you. If you've been hurt by a brother or sister in Christ, Jesus died for that sin that you perhaps are holding on to and can't let go of and can't forgive. You are forgiven. Christ has forgiven you, has forgiven you. And so he says, as a response, the only kind of life that aligns with a life that has experienced the forgiving grace of God is a life that's marked by forgiveness, by radical forgiving of others. And Paul is telling us this because he's saying, look, conflict's going to happen, but this will keep, this will help preserve the unity of the spirit. This will keep conflict from turning into what I heard someone recently call high conflict. Have you heard the term high conflict? 
A woman by the name of Amanda Ripley, a researcher, wrote a book recently called High Conflict. And she says that so many of the conflicts that we experience nowadays, we allow them to turn into what she calls high conflict. She says there's a difference. Low-level conflict we're all used to. High conflict is, is much more dangerous. And she gives a list to kind of describe. Here's what high conflict looks like. I'm not going to read the whole list, but here's a couple of description. Here's a couple of characteristics of high conflict. One, you begin to feel pleasure at the other's misfortune. You ever feel that way? Someone has so hurt you, or you are so angry with someone, or you so disagree with them so strongly that when they begin to experience negative consequences of their actions or just experience misfortune, somehow deep down there's a, there's a sense of glee over that. Like somehow you feel better about the world because that person is suffering. You ever feel that? It's the opposite of love, by the way. Or here, here's here, two more. He says, she says, high conflict looks like this. Even when the other side does something that you agree with, you can't acknowledge it. They do something good, you can't acknowledge it. Because the conflict is so high. Or, or she says, this, is, this one hit home for me. He says, this is a marker of high conflict. You find yourself playing out in your mind detailed arguments with this person in your own head that you may or may not ever have in real life with them. But you're in bed at night running through the script of what you want to say or what you should have said or what you will say if you get the chance. The advice that Ephesians has given us, the instruction that it's presenting before us, helps us to avoid these kinds of high-level conflicts within the body. I mean, we could, take, we could take Ephesians 4 and say, there's lots of marriage advice in here. No doubt. We can apply this in our marriages. If you're married, lots of household advice. We can apply this in our homes. No doubt. But the fact is, he's talking to the church. As we end, I'm just going to give you a couple of clarifications here, just to make sure that I'm not miscommunicating anything here. I want, I want us to realize that God calls us into unity, but it's got to be the unity of the Spirit. It's unity on His terms, not unity on our terms. Sometimes I think we want unity based on our terms, based on our preferences. Like I would love to be a part of a church or a community that unites around this, this thing that I really care about, this thing that's very important to me. I wish we would all unite around it. Whatever it is, you can fill in the blank. God says, no, the unity that we're working towards is a unity in the Spirit. It's a unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only kind of unity that Jesus really gives us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many, many years ago, wrote these words. He says, he who loves his dream of a community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of community, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. And the reason I share this, because I think it, it hits home for me anyway, there's, it's possible for us to conceive of a kind of unity we want, the kind of community we want to be a part of. It's perfect. It reflects all of our preferences, all of my sensibilities, all the things that I think are my values and what I think is really important. I would like to see a community that kind of revolves around that and finds real solidarity in that. And Bonhoeffer is saying that's just a dream of a community. The real challenge, what God is calling, the real, it's not just a challenge, but it's a blessed experience that God is calling into, is to come into a church that doesn't share all of your preferences and sensibilities and opinions and strive for unity there around the one thing that does unite you, 
Jesus Christ and his gospel. Because when we try to create unity on our terms, and create, um, create a community that, that revolves around, that's shaped by our particular preferences and opinions and beliefs, we end up destroying, destroying what God has intended to be his church. Another thing I want to say by way of clarification is just that the unity of the spirit, I think I said it before, the unity of the spirit is not uniformity. The unity that we experience as a church can allow for, it must allow for disagreement and different opinions, but what it doesn't allow room for is animosity and vengeance and hate and bitterness. This kind of unity that the Spirit gives us needs, it, differ, it, it, it differentiates between what is essential, those closed-handed things that we must agree on, and those secondary things that we can agree to disagree on. The unity of the Spirit allows for disagreement on secondary matters, but it preserves peace even when there is disagreement. And lastly, the unity of the Spirit is not a kind of unity that just ignores sin. This, this, is, this is a tough truth for some of us. We, we can't simply ignore unrepentant, willful, just ongoing sin within our community and say, well, you know, we just want to maintain the peace. Let's just, let's just keep the peace. And we can do that sometimes. We can, we, we can end up doing that unwisely. We can say in the name of patience or in the name of kindness, in the name of gentleness, I'm not going to address this, this existing um, departure from truth in this person's life. This person is on a, on a bad trajectory. These people, whatever, they're, they're in, a, in, a, in a bad place. They're sinning and they're unwilling to turn away from their sin and return to Christ. But I'm just going to leave that alone because I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to disrupt the peace around here. That's not what the unity of the Spirit means. On the contrary, the kind of unity that we experience in the Spirit is the kind of unity that calls us to hold one another accountable. As we're going to see next week, the covenant speaks to this, to a care that we must exercise towards one another, a care that's, that encourages but at times is even willing to admonish one another, that's willing to call someone away from danger and away from sin. And back into the light. There's a, there's a passage, a tough passage in 1 Corinthians 5. It says this, it says, but now I'm writing to you. This is the same Apostle Paul who says, fight for unity, pray for unity, strive for unity, maintain the unity. He says, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, or a viler, a drunkard, or a swindler. An assortment of different kinds of sin there, right? He's saying if, if someone's life, they call themselves a Christian, they say they're united to God by the Spirit, but they're living in such a way that seems to not align with that. And, and it's, it's not just gone on for a season. It's like unrepentant. It's just going on and on. They're living an immoral life or a greedy life. It's interesting that greed is in there. That greed is kind of a sin that we tend to give a pass to, but it's right in there. Idolatry, reviling, drunkenness, a swindler, a cheat, a, a thief. If someone is living in that way but still calls himself brother, Paul says, actually, you don't have unity there. There is no unity. So don't act as if there's unity there. Instead, he says... I instruct you not even to, to eat 
with such a one. And a case could be made that that doesn't necessarily mean sitting down and having lunch and saying, hey, listen, what's going on in your life? Let's, let's, let, let's talk about what it would look like for you to return to Christ. Let me encourage you to return. It doesn't mean don't have that kind of sit-down meal. I think, I think it has to do with the Lord's table. Don't eat and drink the body, the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Christ. Don't eat and drink as if you're united when you're not. Instead, he says, purge this person from the community. But, but it's, a restor- it's with restorative ends in mind. The goal, the goal is that this person would turn and come back into the community and find restoration and a renewal. That's the goal. In a sense, the Apostle Paul is saying, don't mess around with fake unity that's temporary and superficial. Instead, if you have to break then break with the goal of having long-term real unity in the future if this person will return to Christ. We're about to take communion together in just a few moments. So I think this is a good, not as good a time as any for us to ask ourselves, is there anyone that we need? Are there any relationships here in our church that need mending? Are there any people that you need to forgive? Are there any places, relationships, where unity and peace have been broken? This is a good time to pray for that person, pray for that relationship, seek them out, and seek to mend that relationship, and seek to reaffirm the unity that you have in Jesus. If no one comes to mind, then pray, praise God for that. Praise God. This is a chance for you to thank the Lord for the unity that, that we're experiencing and seek to preserve it and nurture it. It's also an opportunity to pray Ask the Lord if there are any people that he's calling you to to move towards, to press in towards. People that maybe are new to you, you don't know them very well. There are people with whom you have some disagreements. You know you've got some disagreements. You know you're not the same. You don't see the world the same way. Perhaps this is a call for you to move towards that person. New Hope Fellowship, our covenant says we will work and pray for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And so I'll ask, I'll end with this question. Will we do that? Will we work and pray for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? It's a question for me. It's a question for each of us. If you're a member of this church, will we do this? Some have said, you know, pray like it's all up to God, but work for it like it's all up to you. (laughs) I would tweak that. I would say, pray like it's all up to God. Pray like it's all up to him, but then work for unity like you've been guaranteed success because you have been guaranteed success. The Bible tells us that one day, one day, the body of Christ worldwide will be free of any division, any strife. It will be perfectly and experientially a reflection of the unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit present amongst people like us. That's the promise. Let's pray. Our God, our Father, we thank you for the warnings that your scripture gives us against disunity and the the clear call to work and pray for something that ultimately only you can give us. And so we pray even now. We pray that you would give us healed relationships where they're broken in this church, that you would give us deepened trust and love. We pray, our Father, that you would ultimately maintain 
our unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and use us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.